Hello, everybody. Welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here, and you are listening to part three of our coverage of the Franklin scandal as part of our ongoing PTK series. Uh, this is all, uh, once again, taken from Nick Bryant's book, The Franklin Scandal. And uh, when we last left off, we were talking about the pressure that was mounting um, on the OPD and the FBI to uh, proceed uh, more seriously with their investigations. So the Franklin Committee, uh, the, the committee put together by the state senators, was not deterred in their investigation by the OPD and the FBI's proclamations that the child abuse allegations had no substance. Senator Ernie Chambers told the Omaha World Herald that we'll pursue our investigation without regard to what the chief or the, or the FBI says. Their uh, chief investigator, Lincoln PD Officer Lowe, began to f- follow up on the accounts compiled by the Foster Care Review Board. Dennis Carlson and Kirsten Hallberg were instrumental in giving Lowe meticulous blow-by-blow accounts of their tribulations with the OPD, NSP, and FBI. So that's Omaha Police Department, Nebraska State Patrol, and, and the FBI. Um, as he conducted protracted interviews with them and others, including Seanetta Moore and Ulysses Washington. The girls weren't enthused about being re-interviewed by anyone after the hostility they experienced with the FBI, but Senator Chambers was able to facilitate the interviews and join Lowe as he conducted them. Uh, so just for a little bit of fun and to get a sense of uh, Senator Chambers' like charming personality and m- maybe uh, some insight into how he was able to facilitate this, uh, here's a clip from an interview with Ernie Chambers, it was conducted by uh, comedian Nathan Fielder, who you probably know from his HBO show, The Rehearsal. America, it's a nation that's fast food crazy and a population that's known for eating to an excess. But they're also known for doing something else in excess, suing people. And perhaps recently, one US citizen may have gone too far. He's not only a citizen, He's Nebraska State Senator Ernie Chambers, and last month he walked into a Douglas County courthouse and filed a lawsuit against God. I am the one complaining. God is the defendant. Though Senator Chambers works here, he requested that we conduct the interview in this local barber shop. You want to go higher? Yeah. Okay, just pump it. And you're going up. Then when you want to stop, just break it and lock it. There we go. All right. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, Senator Chambers, why did you sue God? To put it in a nutshell, act of God is a term that's recognized in British law, American law, and Canadian law. So they've already pointed the finger at God as the one who commits these catastrophes. I'm simply calling him to account. It was a statement about frivolous lawsuits, but then, in an unexpected turn, God sued back. Some documents appeared, according to the clerk of the court, mysteriously on his desk. But this this is the kind of silliness I confront all the time. White people think that they're clever, they think they're witty, but they're not. I think I'm pretty witty. Say something witty. Okay, wait. You said you're witty. You ought to be ready. If you tell me you're a fast gun and I say draw, then you got to draw. Are you witty? Well, I write rhymes. Could you 
do one. Who do you want the rhyme about? Me. <laughs> Sitting before me from Canada is a very bright young man. He's doing the best that he thinks he's able, but not the best that I think he can. If he took the time to use his brain and go to the area that's deeper, people would say, this man is wide awake. But to me right now, he's a sleeper. What do you think I need to do? Self-confidence and belief in yourself, self-esteem. That's what you need. And if you chose to, and you like women like I like them, you could have them just throwing themselves at you. Ernie, I hope God loses. <laughs> Me too, he's thinking. Me too. All right, so during her interview with Lowe, after corroborating the OPD files on her interviews with Officer Carmine, Moore disclosed that a dis a Douglas County attorney and an individual on the hospital staff had made it clear to her that she would not be released from the hospital if she did not speak to the hostile and incredulous FBI agents. She said that the FBI had made a concerted effort to keep her off balance and trip her up. Lowe asked for an example of the FBI's tactics. Moore responded that the FBI had told her to relate her story from beginning to end, implying that they would not interrupt her. However, they repeatedly did so and demanded that she provide additional details. Lowe's conclusion after his first meeting with Moore, My initial observation of Chanetta is that she seems to be a very articulate young lady. The next week, they had a second meeting, and this time Lowe questioned her about the two parties she said Larry King attended. She provided details consistent with what she initially provided the OPD and later the FBI. She told Lowe about being transported from the girls club at the age of nine to a studio where she was photographed in the nude accompanied by four other girls. Lowe asked her about the African-American man she identified as Ray who shuttled her back and forth to the parties and the power meetings as well as delivering her to the studio to be photographed. She first indicated that Ray had not brought her to the studio but then later said that she couldn't remember. Lowe suggested the use of hypnosis to jog her memory and she started to cry, saying she did not want to be hypnotized. Moore had described five homicides to the uh, Richard Young Hospital personnel, but only three to the FBI. Lowe pointed out this discrepancy, which Moore explained by saying she felt hurried and battered by the FBI. The other details, including the pseudonyms of the men at the power meeting and descriptions of the locations, were, however, consistent in both of her accounts. According to, to Moore, Larry King was never present at the sacrifices or homicides, and Lowe pressed her regarding the contention that King was an alleged participant in devil worship. Lowe wrote that Moore disclosed to him that a specific individual said that King was involved, but she later told Lowe that the individual in question hadn't made such a disclosure. Despite claiming to have been blindfolded when driven to parties or power meetings, she told Lowe that she might be able to identify one of the buildings in Omaha and also a building in Fort Calhoun, a small town north of Omaha. Lowe took her for a drive past various locations and she wasn't able to identify any locations in Omaha. However, 
she tentatively identified a building in tiny Fort Calhoun. She asked Lowe if the building had recently had an addition built on it, and he said that it had. Later, Lowe learned that this building was in close proximity to the home of a school administrator who Moore said uh, had attended the child sex parties and power meetings. The building's owner had also employed Barbara Webb. After three interviews, Lowe was ambivalent about her veracity as a witness. At this point, he says, I don't really have a firm read on the information which Shawnetta has provided, other than the opinion that if she has fabricated or imagined the information, she is indeed a young individual in desperate need of counseling. If the information that she has given has any validity, it's my opinion that she has succeeded in blocking the information out of her mind and will not share it with anyone. The following month, Lowe met with Euless Washington twice. The first interview primarily concerned her upbringing with the Webbs, and the second on the trips with Larry King. Her accounts were consistent with the board's information. Euless was able to provide what she emphasized was second-hand information about the North Omaha Girls Club concerning stories of older men connected with the Girls Club having sex with the young girls who who frequent it. She discussed her trip to Chicago, which occurred in September or October of 1984. She was able to provide a general description of the chartered plane, and that after exiting the plane, they took a limousine to a fancy hotel in Chicago, but she was unable to remember that hotel's name. She told Lowe that the party took place in the hotel, but on a different floor. She had to take an elevator from her room to the party. Prior to the party, Larry King came to her room and gave her a black negligee to wear. He then escorted her to the party and ordered her to sit, like a mannequin on a little pedestal. The young men who had been on the plane were already in the room, and appetizers were being served. Washington indicated that two African-American men, stationed at the door, scrutinized the older men as they started rolling into the party. She said the two men had been on the chartered plane. Once the party was in full swing, she noticed the older men giving money to King and leaving with the boys. Though she didn't see any explicit sexual acts between the boys and the men, she observed the older men hugging and kissing the boys. About 45 minutes into the party, she recognized a nationally prominent politician enter the gathering, greeted by King and accompanied by a pair of white bodyguards. The politician left with a former Boys Town student named Brandt. She said she was able to positively identify him because his political campaigns gave him widespread visibility and she also had seen a picture of him in Larry King in King's home. Washington said that Brandt didn't return to the party after leaving with the politician, and he wasn't on the flight back to Omaha either. She also discussed her trip to New York, which she said occurred in February or March of 1985. She told Lowe that she left school early on a Friday and was driven to King's home. A limousine then collected her and King and drove them to the airport. She told Lowe that King chartered the same plane that delivered her to Chicago. She said that some of the boys who were on the plane to Chicago accompanied King to New York. Washington informed Lowe that two older female hookers and two young girls, no older than seven years of age, were on the plane too. She described the young girls as fast and was startled by their streetwise lingo. She also stated that King's son was on the plane. Washington said that a limo drove them from the airport to a hotel in Manhattan, but again, she couldn't recall the name of the hotel. As in Chicago, she stayed in a hotel room by herself. 
Lo asked her where the little girls lodged, and she replied she didn't know. Once more she was forced to wear a negligee without underpants and sit on a pedestal poised like a mannequin. She pointed out that it was a different negligee than the one she wore in Chicago. She recounted that the party in New York had considerably more sexual activity than the party in Chicago. At one point, she was surrounded by men who were masturbating in front of her. Washington said she missed school the following Monday and Tuesday, and later found out that a secretary from the school phoned the webs about her absence. She presumed the webs told school personnel that she was sick. Lowe concluded that his interviews with both girls seemed to have been a tale of two victims. He noticed inconsistencies between Moore's accounts of her abuse as she related to him, as she related them to the FBI and to him, but also noted that the accounts Washington furnished to the FBI and to him were consistent. In fact, the only major discrepancy between the Julie Walters report from Boys Town and what Ulysses reported to the FBI and Lowe, and to Bryant years later, was that she only accompanied King to Chicago and New York, whereas Walters jotted down that Ulysses had flown to Chicago, New York, and Washington, D.C., Eulis denied telling Walters that she had been to D.C., but she had told her that King had a townhouse there. So perhaps there was a mix-up and Walters thought that she had also been to the city. Nick Bryant has spent numerous hours with Eulis Washington, and he reports that she's never wavered in her accounts of the two trips. He's also spent considerable time with her two sisters, Tracy and Tasha, particularly Tasha, and he writes that they definitely don't doubt her accounts of the trips with King. Indeed, Tasha disclosed to him that she felt Barbara Webb was grooming her for out-of-town flights with King. Webb informed Tasha about the possibility of her flying to New York for, quote, dancing lessons. Lowe began to publish reports for the Franklin Committee, and local press escalated their reportage of the burgeoning scandal. The New York Times and Village Voice were also beginning to report on lurid, mysterious scandals shaping up in Omaha. The Omaha World-Herald and Lincoln Journal published articles in which the Foster Care Review Board's Dennis Carlson and OPD Chief Wadman sparred over abuse allegations. Carlson I'm still concerned as to whether the allegations have been thoroughly investigated. He revealed that Officer Carmine told him that OPD officers lied to Wadman in an effort to ensure that the OPD's investigation into King remained a secret from the chief. Wadman responded to Carlson with a flurry of counterpunches. He said that an officer, presumably Carmine, made a mistake in judgment, and he produced reports from five officers stating that he hadn't been kept in the dark concerning an investigation into King. Wadman. The genesis of most of these allegations comes from uncredible sources. The same article also had Carlson saying, that Carmine divulged to him that an envoy of Wadman's inquired if the, robbery, if the robbery and sexual assault unit was investigating King, and it was reported to him that King was not under investigation. Wadman would admit that he made an inquiry into the investigation, but he couldn't recall exactly when. An OPD lieutenant would state that Wadman's inquiry occurred when King was, was not under investigation. Lowe interviewed the lieutenant, but he denied making the comment. He told Lowe that the inquiry happened between July 5th and July 20th. If Wadman made his inquiry in July, as the lieutenant asserted, and he didn't find out about the investigation until November or December, then it stands to reason that he was kept in the dark about the investigation as Carmine had claimed. 
Lowe wanted to talk to Carmine, but he did not want to contact him at the OPD. He staked out Carmine's residence for a few days, but when their paths never crossed, he eventually did contact the OPD. Lowe felt it was best not to talk to Carmine at his workplace, so they arranged for him to be interviewed at the board's chief legal counsel, Naylor's, Lincoln office. Carmine expressed consternation over his conversations with Dennis Carlson being made public. He had assumed that they were confidential. He told Lowe and Naylor that having his exchanges with Carlson hit the papers had heaped anxiety and embarrassment upon him. Carmine said that he had acquired a copy of Carlson's notes and related that he didn't tell Carlson that the investigation of King was super sensitive, but rather he conveyed the investigation was merely sensitive. Moreover, Carmine took issue with Senator Chambers' public statement that he had been transferred from the robbery and sexual assault unit to the OPD's research and planning section to waylay his investigation of King. He said that he voluntarily made the transfer. Despite this, he extensively corroborated Carlson's notes. He confirmed their bypassing of the stenography pool to avoid word of the investigation leaking out to Wadman, and also he corroborated the meeting where federal agents told the OPD to back off their investigation of King. He also agreed that Seanetta Moore was a credible witness. OPD's internal affairs contacted Lowe four days later, inquiring on behalf of Chief Wadman as to why Lowe had not used customary channels to contact Carmine. Lowe responded that he and Naylor had decided to circumvent those channels when lining up their meeting with Carmine. The internal affairs officer then told Lowe that Wadman wished to talk to Lowe and gave him Wadman's number. Lowe phoned Wadman and they agreed to meet at OPD headquarters the next week. When Lowe and Naylor showed up at the OPD, Wadman commenced the meeting by saying that he felt that the OPD had conducted an adequate investigation of the child abuse allegations and that the NSP and FBI validated its findings. He stressed that he didn't have a friendship with King, and the extent of their social contact was the three parties of King that he had attended. He maintained that he had been invited to additional parties, but he declined the invitations. According to Lowe, Wadman also made a point of questioning Carmine's stability. Wadman stated that Carmine was receiving mental health counseling. It's rather astonishing that Wadman would violate Carmine's confidentiality by telling Lowe and Naylor that he was under the care of a mental health uh, professional. Interestingly, Wadman's comments to Lowe and Naylor about Carmine's mental health proved to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Three months later, Wadman sent an inter-office communication to Omaha's public safety director, the city's overseer of the police and fire departments, requesting a psychological referral for Carmine. Wadman wrote that Carmine's symptoms seemed to fall into two areas. The first class of symptoms consisted of Carmine feeling that the OPD hadn't adequately investigated the allegations of child exploitation pertaining to King. Carmine's second area of symptoms revolved around his thinking that Wadman intentionally hindered the OPD's investigation into King's activities because of the latter's influence and association with Wadman. The public safety director concurred with Wadman's assessment and referred Carmine to a psychologist. The public safety director just happened to be a cousin of Larry King's, and under Wadman's tenure as OPD chief, he had been promoted to a captain. After Wadman interceded on behalf of Carmine's mental health, the Lincoln Journal ran a rather shocking story about a phone call between Chief Wadman and Senator Schmidt, one of the members of the Franklin Committee. 
The paper reported on a meeting that Schmidt had with three citizens who were concerned about law enforcement's approach to the child abuse investigation, and Schmidt stated to them that Wadman threatened him. The Lincoln Journal reported that Schmidt told the concerned citizens that Wadman had said the activities of committee members could be monitored. Schmidt here quoting Wadman as saying, We can get something on anybody, or something of that nature. Schmidt also told the group that he did in fact feel that his activities were being monitored and that he was being followed. At this point, Schmidt had also become the target of threatening anonymous phone calls. In addition to the threats dispensed to Schmidt, the members of the Franklin Committee found themselves navigating upstream against a strong current of opposition by the OPD, NSP, and FBI. But the repeated denials of both state and federal law enforcement only served to heighten the suspicions of some committee members. Methinketh they protest too much, remarked Chambers of Law Enforcement's repudiations. Unless the purpose of doing so is to try and discourage the committee from pursuing our investigation, or to try to trick us into revealing what we may have developed in the way of information. The committee was also hindered by the Nebraska Attorney General's office. The Attorney General's office allowed Naylor to look over its investigative reportings on King, but at least one member of the committee distrusted Naylor and other committee members wanted to see the reports for themselves. So, in June, the committee issued a subpoena that required Assistant Attorney General Howland and Investigator Vlahoulis to cough up the reports, but the Attorney General's office refused to honor the subpoena. The ludicrous response, initially provided by Howland and Vlahoulis for not surrendering the reports, was that someone else in the Attorney General's office was actually in possession of them. The Franklin Committee was probing the sexual abuse of children, the most heinous of crimes, and the office of Nebraska's Attorney General was seemingly hindering their investigation. As the Attorney General's office stonewalled the committee, and the OPD, NSP, and FBI declared that the King-related child abuse allegations had no substance, a number of Omaha's citizenry looked on with shock and disbelief, because talk of King-related child abuse had drifted through their community for years and the closing of Franklin only served to intensify the innuendo. By the summer of 1989, eddies of Nebraska's populace who had lost faith in their local, state, and federal institutions of government's ability to protect the community's children took it upon themselves to form a group called Concerned Parents. Initially, Concerned Parents met at an Omaha church and attracted only a trickle of members. But as the cover-up of King's activities intensified, its ranks started to swell. Bonnie Constantino was a co-founder of Concerned Parents. The 40-year-old Constantino was a soft-spoken single mother of a 12-year-old boy. Constantino designed and constructed team mascots for a living, the life-size mascots that are spotted running around college and professional sporting events. She had heard of King's harem of boys since the early 1970s, so the allegations didn't surprise her but she was sickened and dismayed by law enforcement's response. She said, We had heard on numerous occasions about young people who had dared to go to law enforcement with the allegations, and they would simply be laughed at, Constantino told Bryant. If you're 14 years old and you can't trust law enforcement, who can you trust? It's like the fire extinguisher was on fire. Concerned parents sought to provide a constructive voice for the victims and to investigate their allegations because of law enforcement's unwillingness to act. 
Concerned parents also acted as a support network for adults who had become bewildered and furious that the child abuse allegations were receiving such scant attention from the authorities. Constantino's role as an organizer for the disenchanted singled her out for a campaign of terror. One day, she and her son were crossing the street when an approaching car sped up and sideswiped them. A bomb was also detonated in her backyard. She too started to receive life-threatening phone calls. There were several people who ran uh, concerned parents, so one person wasn't on the front lines all the time, said Constantino, because it was clear that whoever took a stand would be subjected to retaliation, or their families would be subjected to retaliation. Our lives were turned upside down by fear. We felt that our phones were tapped, so just ordinary day-to-day routines like talking on the phone took on a whole new meaning. On June 22, 1989, the Franklin Committee held public hearings, and it subpoenaed the Foster Care Review Board's Carol Stitt and Dennis Carlson, and Officer Carmine, and Attorney General Spire, Assistant Attorney General Halland, as well as Investigator Vlahoulis. Officer Hawk was also subpoenaed to appear before the committee, but he claimed a scheduling conflict, and the committee let it slide. The witnesses were sworn in before their testimony, and then Naylor and the members of the committee questioned them. Stitt and Carlson testified together, and they basically rehashed the repeated rebuffs by law enforcement. Prior to the hearing, Stitt had cultivated excellent relationships with some of the committee's members. Senator Chambers had turned up the heat on the Attorney General's office after it reacted to the board's allegations with mere apathy at best, and she found Schmidt to be very receptive to the board's concerns when the committee was forming in December. But the day before Stitt testified in front of the committee, Naylor threatened her with a perjury charge concerning her account of the conversation she had with the detective from Kansas City, who was reportedly privy to King's abuse of children. The detective had told Halberg, Stitt, and Carlson in three separate conversations about King exploiting children in Kansas City, but she had completely denied having the foggiest idea of King's abuses when questioned by the FBI and then by Investigator Lowe. Stitt also received a life-threatening phone call the night before she testified in front of the committee. Carmine was the next witness called before the committee, and he essentially reiterated the statements he had made to Investigator Lowe. Carmine, however, was making these statements in a public forum. A TV camera caught him saying that he had heard rumors of an association between Wadman and King, and also of his belief that Shanetta Moore was credible. Within two weeks of Carmine's testimony before the committee, Wadman requested that King's cousin refer Carmine to a psychologist. After Carmine, members of the Attorney General's office were called to face the committee. Howland and Vlahoulis were subjected to the wrath of the committee members, particularly Chambers, not only for their failure to adequately investigate the board's allegations in a timely manner, but also for refusing to honor the committee's subpoena. Though Howland and Vlahoulis did their best to soft-shoe away from the accusations that they sat on the board's materials, they couldn't dance fast enough to belie the grim reality. Vlahoulis confessed that he had not interviewed a single victim. But as Howland and Vlahoulis dipped and dodged, they couldn't help themselves from making relevant disclosures. Howland initially testified that the Attorney General's office wanted to oversee the OPD's investigation of the abuse allegations and requested updates from the OPD. Howland said he received no reports from the OPD on its investigation of the abuse allegations until he met with Chief Wadman in late October or early November. 
So both Howland and Officer Hoke said that Wadman knew of the King investigation in or before November, even though Wadman told the media that December marked his first inkling of the investigation because the evidence was so scant. Howland also testified that the U.S. attorney for Nebraska had informed him that the FBI was investigating King not only for his financial improprieties, but also for child exploitation and drug dealing. Howland said he was told about the federal investigation by the middle of October, but the feds later claimed they were only investigating King's financial crimes at the time. Either Howland or the feds were being untruthful. By the time Attorney General Speyer testified, the committee had decisively established that the Attorney General's office had, in fact, sat on the allegations, and Chambers used a number of adjectives to characterize its investigation. Slipshod, superficial, and incompetent. Chambers also inquired of Spire why the Attorney General's office hadn't honored the committee's subpoena. After considerable circumlocution, Attorney General Spire replied that it wouldn't be legally appropriate for his office to turn over its reports to the committee. Shortly after the committee's initial hearings on June 22nd, committee members held a meeting to discuss its interim report. Resolution 5 mandated that the committee submit a progress report to the unicameral by July 1st. Naylor would be tasked with writing the interim report, and he submitted a draft of it to committee members before the July 1st deadline. Schmidt read Naylor's draft of the interim report, and he was outraged, because Naylor seemed to focus on a lack of response primarily by the Attorney General's office. Naylor's draft of the interim report also said that the committee's investigation of the King-related child abuse allegations was intensive and ongoing, but it would be wrapping up at the end of August. Schmidt absolutely wouldn't sign off on the committee discontinuing its investigation of the child abuse allegations by the end of August. Schmidt then wrote a three-page addendum to the committee's interim report. His addendum conceded that the committee had not uncovered prosecutable offenses relating to child abuse, and he believed that it needed to change its investigative tactics and follow the money in order to, fer in order to ferret out improprieties, including child abuse. Schmidt's addendum provoked Naylor, Lowe, and also Chambers to resign from the committee. A World Herald article, Senator Schmidt told of pressure to halt probe, reported on the committee's rupture. The article quoted Lowe, who said Schmidt had remarked to him that there was pressure to stop the investigation. In the article, Schmidt confirmed the pressures. I've gotten phone calls threatening me, he said. I've been told to leave it alone or my kids were going to be orphans. The article also reported on comments made by Chambers about Schmidt's addendum and his own resignation. Chambers said that Schmidt's change of direction dried up possible avenues of information and de-emphasized the investigation of child abuse. He felt that the committee's probe was becoming a sham and might intentionally or inadvertently be a cover-up. Chambers added that it would be impossible for the committee to follow the money trail because the NCUA and other federal entities wouldn't grant the committee access to the credit union's records. Schmidt responded to Chambers' comments. I resent the implication I'm not concerned about the children in determining whether or not the allegations of child abuse are true. He retorted that he hadn't changed his mind about the child abuse allegations, but the prior tactics of Naylor and Lowe hadn't yielded prosecutable offenses. Find out where the money went, and you'll find the rest, said Schmidt and then he cited a $2,800 credit card receipt that showed King purchased a coat for Charlie Rogers, whose death had been unconvincingly ruled a suicide. 
all right well so we're gonna wrap up this one here uh this is the end of part one of the book so uh yeah thanks for listening and we will catch you next time